Hello and welcome to Waypoint 101, where Waypoint and its contributors chat in detail about classic games or just games that we're strangely hung up on, because uh, as listeners know, not every game we go to bat for would fit people's definition of a classic. Uh, but anyway, for today, I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and today I'm joined by Cameron Kunzelman. Hello! Uh, so today we're going to be talking about L.A. Noir, uh, Team Bondi's and Rockstar's 2011 hit detective game that has since achieved almost Skyrim levels of being ported to new platforms. Uh, if you haven't already checked it out, you should check out uh, Cam's retrospective on the game la- from last month, where he discussed the game's noir influences and its ultimately ambivalent, uncommitted worldview, where binaries of good and evil are complicated and rejected, but also the moral questions are evaded in that same process um it's it's a it's an ambivalent game i would say oh absolutely uh <laughs> i mean and you know it's a noir uh <laughs> and and uh so you know i mean it's leaning into that right and so the question is um you know does it earn ambivalence you know i think when, when you approach any noir or any kind of you know, whatever, um, uh, not, not pseudo noir, whatever they're called, the, the kind of follow on, um, in the genre. The question to me is always, did the thing that you spent time watching or reading or neo war is the word I was looking for, but did, does it earn the kind of, um, you know, nihilism that, uh, noir as a genre goes for? And I think in some ways, uh, you know, I, I guess part of the ambivalence in the article is uh, getting through the whole game. And I played the whole thing in a pretty short amount of time, uh, in like a week or something like that. That's maybe faster than anyone should play L.A. Noir. Um, but, you know, in big parts of it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like really firing all, on all cylinders. Um, you know, this is a question for you uh, that we didn't talk about just a minute ago. But uh, is this a full spoilers going out? I'm talking about every part of this game. Do I need to hold anything well, back? What, what do you think? Rob? Yeah. Uh, so that kind of touches on maybe the broader direction of Waypoint One. So the short answer is we're going full spoilers here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, first I should say thanks to people listening right now. I've uh, already made the launch of Waypoint Plus a success, but I think to lay out some of our thinking around Waypoint 101, um, because I'm not sure this is representative of what we're always going to be doing, I think long term we might end up splitting this between the public and subscription feeds where we do a general, like kind of spoiler reserved uh, retrospective discussion on the main feed and then maybe have a more book club style discussion uh, on the subscription feed. Uh, we haven't really had the bandwidth to do that in this case because we've been busy launching it. Um, but I think that's the model we're probably looking at in the future. Uh, so, you know, again, part of Waypoint Plus is we're trying to make sure that more cool stuff is also happening in the main feed, but still there's also special experiences for subscribers, uh, in the subscription feed as well. So I think like, wait, like if we were doing this the way I think we all kind of envision it, uh, long-term Cam, you and I are probably having this conversation on the main feed and we would mm-hmm. not maybe be going too blow by blow in this. And we probably like hold back on some of the late game reveals. Um, here, we're just going to cover the whole game and you know, it is 10 years old. And to a degree, I, I do think like, I think not discussing spoilers also would really hinder any discussion of LA noir. Cause like, I think what makes it ultimately worthwhile, you're moving into spoiler territory. 
Absolutely, yeah, and that's kind of why I was asking, because, you know, it, it is a interesting detective game in a broad possible sense, right? Uh, it is an interesting detective game to the two-thirds mark, um, and then the whole game kind of turns inside out. I mean, it does some really interesting stuff that um, I think Rockstar, uh, Rock, you know, this is a weird game because developed by Team Bondi, but, um, you know, published by Rockstar, and I did quite a bit of research into the development of the game, you know, uh, uh, really notably bad development for a video game, huge amounts of crunch, a big credit scandal, like Rockstar said several times, but this is particularly by Team Bondi um, in Australia. Or that's that's the studio that the scandal was about. Um, just a nightmarish development process across the board. Um, but uh, it, it has this kind of Red Dead um, kind of feel to it where I don't necessarily think the first Red Dead Redemption game is like great all the way through. And I know that y'all did a Waypoint 101 on that way back a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, and, and if I remember right, y'all had some of these same kind of feelings about it where playing the thing eventually kind of <laughs> runs out of steam. Um, but there are narrative moves, especially the end of Red Dead, where um, and Red Dead Redemption 2 kind of felt this way to me, too, where it was like, I guess I had to sit through a lot of that that I did not enjoy. But damn, this was really worth it in the end, um, you know, because there are these kind of big emotional and in Red Dead, very melodramatic moves that um, they just work. You know, this kind of thing of uh, um, some someone who means a lot sacrificing themselves. You know, that's the broadest possible terms. When you sit with that narrative for long enough, it kind of works. And here in L.A. Noir, right, you're with Cole Phelps, who is notably um, someone you do not want to spend time with, right? Like, he's yeah. this, like, um, stickler for the rules who uh, talks down to everyone else. We get these kickbacks into his history of being in uh, the Marines, and he is constantly uh, deferring to authority in order to move his way up. He's a terrible military commander who gets people killed multiple times that we can see and then ends up being uh, receiving an award for it. Right. He's rewarded for um, what he certainly sees as cowardice and what other people saw, too. Um and so uh, he's this just not, you know, I don't like the word not likable, but he is someone who, um, you know, makes my skin crawl in some ways. He's he's not a pleasant person. Um, and then we watch him morally fail. Uh, you know, he he is coming back from the war or he's back from the war and doing this job and he's white picket fence, you know, heteronormative family, all this kind of imaginary that we have around that that period for. Um, you know, the post-World War II time, you know, his family is uh, one of the sets of characters in the hours, essentially, right? And um, and then he just throws it all in the toilet, right? He um, and is made an example of by the L.A. press and gets demoted down to arson, you know, to basically a investigation field that doesn't matter. I mean, people are told that repeatedly in the game. Like, don't think too hard about it. It's always, you know, someone burning it down for insurance money. Um, and then he follows that trail to the, this big reveal. At the same time, you end up with um, splitting the characters, right? So now we're bouncing back and forth between Cole Phelps and um, his war buddy, um, Jack Kelso, who is kind of his nemesis in some ways, right? Um, he's a... 
so he is a man of action, and he's been a private investigator or an investigator for an insurance company this whole time. And, and crucially, goes, was his first sergeant during the war. He, he, uh, Colt Phelps was over Kelso. That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah no. Like. Like. Kelso is like the NCO who actually runs things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you know, and then then it turns into this kind of thing where Kelso is. Um, rough and tumble solving some of the problems of Hollywood land, which is like, you know, assaulting the home of a real estate developer with his like, you know, uh, uh, group of troops, like the war buddies who remain and like killing hundreds of guards. And like, that's a mission that you play while Cole Phelps is, you know, uh, investigating arson murders on the other side. And they both matter and they kind of dovetail into each other and cross back and forth. And, you know, the end of it is just beautiful in that way. I mean, I think the plotting of it, the um, the way that that the game kind of blooms out of that and, and says, yes, Cole Phelps is insufficient to this world. Um, it, it really, really works like it's a really powerful thing. But you have to, like, plod through a lot of stuff to get there that that, uh, you know, I don't think I would ever want to play again. And I'll, and I'll say, too, uh, that the special edition or whatever it's called, the, the most recent edition, complete maybe, or no, I'm sorry, I think it's remastered edition is the appropriate term. It folds in all the DLC missions for the original game, and that makes the game way too long. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're not particularly interesting, nor do they really like add to the flow of the plot. Um, and one of them is really big. It features a um, like a chemical factory blowing up. And so it, when that happens in the game, it's just part of the process of things. You're like you and your partner are looking toward the horizon and there's like a nuclear explosion that happens. And that feels like that's supposed to be a big part of the end of the game. But it just kind of comes and goes. And I found out later that that was a DLC mission. So it really messes with, I think, the narrative flow in some ways. But um but yeah, yeah. That, the, that's the kind of gist of, of getting through the game and why that why that was really kind of powerful for me um, in a way that I was really not expecting. Yeah, I think one of the weird things about Alain Noir, um, and this is the way in which it feels a lot like a Rockstar game, is that it it's kind of overtly trying to be this genre pastiche of genres that don't entirely go to or works that don't entirely go together, They're like mm-hmm. works that sort of circle a genre, but like aren't really, if you sort of stack them all, all up like one atop the other or nested them inside one another, they wouldn't really make sense. And so there are times where I think, especially in its first act, uh, LA noir is explicitly pulling liberally from LA confidential. Yes. Um, but in terms of like the arc of Cole and the type of cop Cole is, uh, in a lot of ways, it's also about Dragnut, a TV show that uh, LA Confidential explicitly references with its uh, faux Dragnut badge of honor. Um, and a lot of times in that early part of the game, you feel like you're in that really stick up its ass police procedural of, um, you know, of, of the Dragnet mold where Cole Phelps is a less likable, uh, you know, Joe Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the game also has this interest in turning into Chinatown, uh, you know, later on. It is a little interested in um, other Elroy works like the, the like, well, I guess it's interested in the Black Dahlia killings, um, but it's also interested in, 
works that have uh, sort of surrounded stuff like that. Um, I would say it even is attempting to get some maybe like FM Patal vibes in mm-hmm. there, but it can't really pull it off. Um, and then I think it's also kind of being influenced by uh, war series that preceded it, uh, like Band of Brothers or Generation Kill, where in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, L.A. Noir is also a game, um, and it's a, it, it doesn't tip its hand hand about this for a long time. It's really only at the end you realize how much this is about the experience of um, like combat trauma and mm-hmm. the experience of soldiers returning from war. It's really only late in the game that you realize, like, oh, this entire thing has also been about this. Like, this is one of the main points of this game, uh, and it, it holds back on that for a long time, but. That is a lot of that's a that's a wide reach that L.A. Noir is making. Yeah, and I think that has to do just a lot with production. Uh, to to be frank, uh, from what I you know doing research, you know, and going back ten years, you know, there's a very famous IGN article that that kind of was digging through the production of the game. But um, Team Bondi is founded by a bunch of people who came from Team Soho who did the Getaway. Right, which is basically uh, L.A. Noir, but for Guy Ritchie films, right? Like it, it's this uh, kind of GTA-ish kind of game about uh, crime, I think, in London, um, and it, you know, it's it's that kind of um, cultural vibe, right? But it's it's folding in a lot of like 1990s and early 2000s crimey kind of stuff, and so very famously, the the lead of L.A. Noir, Brendan McNamara would uh, go to anyone at any given time during the development, you know, whether you are the lowest animator or, you know, the the cinematic director or whatever, and would say, I don't like this, this needs to change. And that that is part of the reason this game took so long to develop. But I think you can really feel that in all of those references, um, in all of those kind of, of composite, you know, almost, sometimes different genre things, right, you know, I don't really think actually that LA Confidential has much to do with Dragnet in in any way other than the police are involved. Um and and yet I think you're right that both of those things are crammed right in here and I think it it has to do with this kind of singular authoritarian capability, maybe not vision because I don't know, I'm not in the guy's head, but certainly capability of saying of walking to any given staff member uh, who's working on the game and saying, this needs to look more like LA Confidential. This needs to sound more like Chinatown. Um, and, you know, when when those references show up, they show up. I mean, you can feel them. Um, when I was writing the piece, I went back and revisited a bunch of, of those, um, you know, big major films uh, in the genre. And you, yes, I mean, <laughs> big chunks of this game are just Chinatown. Um, and that, and it works, I guess, perfectly fine. But, but I think that part of the, that rock star feel to it in some ways is that, um, given everything that we know, the Housers work in similar ways of this doesn't work. Let's do it. Here's my vision for it. Let's push it forward. Um, and so I, I, I think that it really comes from, you know, one kind of, uh, capability to, to push and make sure that certain references are in there. 
And unfortunately, when you just string a bunch of references together, it uh, it doesn't necessarily produce something that's entirely coherent. It produces a robot chicken episode, <laughs> I think, in you know its most cultural form. And in some ways, I think all the you know L.A. Noir and uh, you know the rock star uh, oeuvre in a broad sense is kind of like watching robot chicken episodes, like themed yeah. robot chicken episodes, or like uh, the Family Guy. Um, uh, Star Wars. <laughs> you know, right, but if Robot movie? Chicken were really convinced that it were high art and doing yeah. important work um, yes. rather than just like quoting other pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I agree. I think this is and, – and the weird thing is, like, again, I would maybe argue that the thing it begins to get to in the end where it's like, well, this is – like this whole thing is about sort of this original sin of um, what happened with these soldiers, uh, both – when they were deployed mm-hmm. um, and the things they did that don't get talked about and don't get reckoned with. And then their experience coming home um, where you're just sort of demobilized and tossed into American life. I think that's probably the most interesting angle of this because there is no, there are a lot of crime movies that are about returning soldiers falling into crime, but there's not a lot of, I think, I don't think there's a ton of like noirs that have really explored that a great deal. Um there's a lot of there's a lot of noir films that like reference the fact that like guys have um a history of like military violence in their past or something but like th- it's an interesting angle that this game goes in in the end but before that you've got to wade through an awful lot of these quotes of other works that because they are focused and specific work a hell of a lot better than um LA noir LA noir I think you can almost imagine a version of it where it's three shorter games or it's like three different Mm -hmm. series of a TV show Uh, because it does follow this arc of we have the rapid rise of Cole Phelps where we're kind of riding shotgun. And this is the other thing. I think I like it is so easy to find this game grading when you are convinced that you're just going to be hanging out with Phelps the entire time. (laughs) And there's that tendency to think, I'm supposed to identify with the guy I'm playing and it becomes like I'm inhabiting this guy, but he's a prick and I don't really like him. And he seems like he's maybe bad at his job. And it does turn out in the end games keenly aware of this. The game knows exactly who Phelps is. It's going to deal with that. But for an awful long time, you are just riding shotgun with a far less charismatic Ed Exley uh, from LA Confidential, um, as he harder to be less charismatic than than Ed Exley, Ooh, and yet one of the just infinitely uh, you know grating characters. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right, 100. Yeah, and and so you have this sort of rapid ascent from patrolman through uh, like low level detective work into homicide, and then you have sort of his ascent. Um, into the the dangerous realm of vice, um, and then his rapid disgrace and his uh, sort of plummet into irrelevance in the arson squad, and here we start to like intersect with Jack Kelso. He emerges as like the main character of the game's final act. Um, yeah. But that's an awful lot of material that's being held in reserve, and there's an awful lot of like just bog standard detective story stuff happening centering on a character that maybe you don't like very much. 
Yeah, and, and the the unfortunate thing about that, like, I mean, I think there are a few unfortunate things, but the, the really true one is that, yes, you're 100% right that, you know, the game knows that Cole Phelps is not, a, you know, great to hang out with. And it does really cool things with that, I think, narratively, and because we're signaled that pretty early, right? Like, other people find him annoying, and so... Um, I, I'm forgetting the the guy's name, uh, but his first kind of partner oh, in uh, traffic, uh, Bukowski. Yeah, yes, <laughs> he's great, and he he is the person who we it, it, you know it's kind of weird. You're playing the game, and you're playing as Cole Phelps, and you know normally you're you're playing with a character, and, and narratively you identify with them, or at least you know action wise you identify with them. But it's very clear, right? You know when his partner's like. Okay, Phelps, I guess we'll do this. That that you can kind of um see you can identify with the partner who is um reacting to your video game play. And that's like a really fun and interesting experience. And, and I think that, you know, very few games are interested in doing that. You know, there very few games are interested in how does the world see the character that I'm playing as? And Cole Phelps is kind of general unlikability, I think allows you to do that um and you know that that's something that's like really critical the ability to have a main character who is not likable and who we're not supposed to identify with and who does things that are um either morally or uh, you know morally bad or we just don't like that's a big toolbox in the the filmmaker's tool or a big tool in the filmmaker's toolbox right like that's something that is critical to cinema as a way of making movies for, you know, I don't know, the past 80 years or so. Um, video games have not cracked that, right? I mean, they are very much still in the mode of like, we, we got we got the good guy on our side and maybe they've worked for a bad group, right? You know, maybe they're working for some sort of, of team that turns out to be evil, but they're good, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I find that that really interesting and valuable. Um, the, the other side of it too, is that his kind of ascent and, and fall is built up in, in much the same way that LA confidential is, you know, that we were talking about before, you know, I guess spoilers also for LA confidential. That's nearly 20 years old at this point. Um, you know, LA confidential is about a, a stickler cop and then a live wire cop in, in the similar time period to when this is taking place. Uh, you know, I think it's in the 1950s. And they basically find out that the uh, police department itself is uh, has run gangsters out of town, you know, run the mob out of town and has is preventing is using the police you know, force itself to prevent other um, uh, gangs from the U.S. from moving into L.A. And so are running the operation themselves. So basically the police apparatus is just a gang. And that that movie ends, you know, ends with a big shootout that that resolves that um, some plot important stuff happens. But then ultimately is saying, like, there's these two good cops and they have they're going to make the world at least a little bit better because the big evil cop is gone and this gang operation is gone. Uh, L.A. L.A. Noir doesn't do that. L.A. Noir ends on a note of the police are horrifyingly corrupt and probably unredeemable. Um, you know, Cole, Cole Phelps um, chooses to die at the end of this game. He chooses to be swept away by water. And one of the final shots that we see, a kind of sewer water um, runs into him and, and he drowns, presumably. Um, it, you know, then we cut to the final scene. 
It is at a at his funeral. We hear all these speeches, and then we watch the vice cop. Yep. Um, who is just objectively, you know, Roy objectively Earl. and obje- yeah, Roy Earl, evil, just a perfectly evil character. He he shakes hands, I think, with the DA, the new DA, who was going to clean up the town. So like, we know that nothing is going to happen. The police are still deeply corrupt. Nothing's going to move forward. Um, and and that to me, I was like, that, now that's nihilism. Dude, <laughs> you know, you've that's- been thinking for hours that like before this <laughs> yes. is over. Oh, Roy, or we're going to settle up with Roy. <laughs> yeah. And like, he's practically like, somehow he's basking in like the reflected heroism of Phelps. Um, mm-hmm. Like he's the big winner out of this. Yes. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a dark fucking ending. And he should. And that's the thing is that, you know, the it, very similar to Chinatown. It's about this kind of real estate deal that's going to happen, you know, and the, and the specifics of it do not matter. Um, but it's basically the small group of people like the mayor, the the police chief, uh, a real estate developer, and then Roy himself. They're all going to enrich themselves based on this like very Baroque plot of building houses for returning GIs that will then be um, not sold to GIs that will then be returned. The property will be returned back to the developing company, which will then be sold for its improvement cost to uh, the state in order to build a highway. So it's just like, oh my God, you know, extremely noir plot. But but the, the basically what happens is that uh, some of those people who are part of that plot get busted for it, and some of them don't. And the ones who don't just get to go and live their lives. And Cole Phelps, the only person who thought that law and order mattered in any kind of way, drowned in the sewer, you know? And that that I was like, yes, this is good. This is a good video game. Um, and it's a little bit cathartic, too, if you don't like Cole Phelps, because you're like, oh, yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> He's well, gone now. Don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's interesting, like, where my feelings with, with Cole end up, which is that I think for I think one of the game's miscues is that he remains kind of a cipher. Um, mm-hmm. They never convince me, like. There's no like he's a cold fish and he's supposed to be, but also he feels kind of inanimate. Um, like his ambition is maybe convincing, but for instance, yeah, he starts out he's supposedly happily married, he's living that idyllic life, but none of that is real. The game isn't interested in his home life, and so when he has an affair, uh, that will ultimately expose him to being disgraced. Um, that doesn't feel like a weighty decision. It's important for what is going to happen to his career, but like. Oh, he's, he's, he's destroying his marriage. Well, what marriage? I don't know about it. Um, mm-hmm. This isn't a real person. And the and the person that he's hooking up with, uh, Elsa, also doesn't feel much like a convincing character. I mean, like right there, the name is evoking Ilsa from Casablanca. But she has like this Marlena Dietrich backstory. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of a Marlena, Marlena Dietrich figure in, in some ways. If, um, oh God, what's the... Um, What's the movie she made uh, in Germany? Blue, uh, uh, not the Blue Angel. Is that it? Uh, I, I don't know why I'm. Uh, I don't know why that's in my head. Where she's like a torch singer. <laughs> yeah. Hold yeah. on. Let's learn. Wow, she did so many things. Wikipedia. Wow. <laughs> shout out! Shout, shout out to Marlena Dietrich. Yeah, huge, huge deal. Oh my gosh, she did so much stuff. Yeah, has like this entire great career yeah. in Germany before she flees and like has another great career in, in the U.S. Yeah, the Blue Angel. Yeah. So 
kind of cuts that figure as well. Um, she's sort of under suspicion for, you know, just by virtue of being German. Um, but she's sort of held up as like the, the dangerous, mysterious, sexy lady who's going to like uh, doom Phelps down this path of temptation. But she ends up being a pretty, just a solid, just a solid citizen, a good egg. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no real, there's not much moral ambiguity around her. Like she's a, there's some sympathetic beats there. Uh, you know, she's a re- recovering, um, like heroin addict. She, like, she's been compromised by that in some ways, but at no point, like it's, it's sort of the form of the femme fatale game's not really interested in it. It neither is it very interested in her and Phelps relationship. She ends up kind of fulfilling this really functional role of she's going to be the person who says, Hey, you two key detectives in the story, Phelps and Kelso, you are working the same case. You fucking idiots. You need to talk. <laughs> Um, and that's kind of where it goes, but it means that there's so many things that happen to Phelps that are like important in this, like in the plot, but they don't feel important to our understanding of the character. Um, you know, you don't get the sense of, does this guy fall in love? Does he, you know, like what does he make of, uh, the gap between his, ideals and sort of the lackadaisical corruption that surrounds him. Uh, He doesn't really enunciate very much. He doesn't very express very much uh, throughout this game. Um, I think the most we get out of him a lot is sort of a, he he get, when he he gets worked up, he's more petulant um, than crusading (laughs) is the way I'd put it. Yeah. He's like a little baby. Like like he he loves to be like, well, I think you're not telling me the truth. (laughs) <laughs> and you're like, all right, man. Like, I don't know. I think if I were being uh, interrogated in this way, I probably wouldn't wouldn't say too much. Yeah, I think a big um, issue with the game that's very visible, you know, ten years on here, is that that with the motion scan technology, where they were doing the kind of 3D scanning of people's faces in order to to make the, um, I mean, I guess the performances in a broad sense work, but really the interrogation mechanic mini game system whatever we want to call that um in order to make that work i think they 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 thought they had more than they actually did have yeah meaning that there are lots of scenes where you get to see cole phelps you know shot reverse shot looking at uh elsa or looking at his partners or looking at people who are victims and in an HBO drama, right? When that happens, we're going to get that that crisp close up. We're going to see those tiny facial expressions. We're going to see we can watch a character who we think is operating one way have different emotional reactions to that, right? And and part of the magic of cinema is that images tell their own stories and we can figure out how that works. Uh, you know, we can figure out someone's position towards something that betrays their words. You know, the image and the word don't always have to say the same thing. Um, especially in a, in a noir, right? You know, look at Chinatown and you're going to see a lot of Jack Nicholson saying one thing and emoting a different one. And that's how that movie works. Um, they can't do, they think they're doing that or they're trying to do that. Maybe is the best way of saying that um, with the motion scan technology, but it doesn't have a fine enough gradation and the game just doesn't have the capability to, to linger on that. Um, Cole Phelps spends, and everyone really in this game spends a lot of time um, saying things that the plot eventually reveals to us are not their true feelings. 
and we get a lot of images of Cole Phelps, for example, looking at Elsa. And clearly he's emoting some feeling. And I think at the end of the day, we're supposed to realize those two things were not the same, right? You know, they're trying to use some of the the power of the cinematic, you know, mode in order to do that. But but the technology just isn't there. And so the, that fine gradation, you know, the uncharitable way of reading this is saying that, oh, uh, the, the L.A. Noir team thought that a shot reverse shot of Cole Phelps looking at the singer singing would be enough to communicate that he was going to burn his life down, uh, you know, to to be with her. And that is just not there. So, you know, it was interesting going back and reading pieces from release and seeing quite a few pieces of people being like, I can't believe Cole Phelps did this. I can't believe that he betrayed his family and like ruined his life. Why did he do it? <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, so it really did come up on people. And it is surprising. It's kind of this inversion um, that I think. I think the developers thought they had more um, breadcrumbs around um, and you can see them trying it, but, I, but it definitely doesn't work even in the era of 4k, you know, up res LA, LA noir um, well, still not really working out. And I think there it's kind of operating this tradition too of um, my dad is like once um, my dad's been quietly working on this thing about like the connection between screwballs and, uh, sort of representing pre-war uh like gender dynamics and then how like it all kind of curdles during the war and like we do almost a hard cut to noir um screwballs disappear mm -hmm. and suddenly bam it's it's noir land and one of the things like of course that he goes to his double indemnity which pairs stanwick and uh, fred mcmurray again together mm -hmm. um having been in the terrific uh remember the night but here, um, you know, instead of a great love story, it's an iconic film noir. But one of the things that he observed about that is if you really stop and you think, like, why does Fred McMurray's character do this? Because he is the prime mover. Like, if you, if you watch that movie, um, the notion that Barbara Stanwyck's character leads him astray is bullshit. Um, like, he sees her, he wants her, and begins engineering everything, like, fr from the word go. Um, but, but the question is like, why, and, and why does he do it? And, I, and he, his argument is key to understanding that movie is that you see what he has and without him enunciating anything, you also have to understand why a man with a comfortable life and a decent job would still just sort of walk out into the darkness. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think Phelps is operating in that tradition but the thing they don't get across is he's such a boring vanilla character. The thing Fred McMurray had, and again, you get this with like cinematic performance and like expressions and the ability to watch people act and imagine what they're thinking. Fred McMurray was like the everyman who in the right light and with the right material, like you could see just utter darkness be behind that sort of facade. Um, and we can't get that. We never get that sense of LA noir often feels like it's all facade. Uh, the, the, the parts of the performance that happen below the surface just can't translate uh, through this. And also I don't think they directed the performance particularly well. It's a, it's a decent cast. They, they clearly they rated the uh, supporting <laughs> cast of Mad Men for this entire game. Um, there's, there's a lot of good performers here. Um, but the, the shadings of performance you're used to seeing just don't come through here because I don't think they can. Yeah. I think something that, that I was really kind of shocked by, uh, but which makes total sense to me is 
what really hinders the game for me in the performance realm has less to do with the tech and more to do with the sound. Uh, the sound on this game is uh, the the dialogue sound is extremely compressed. Yes, or I guess just the dialogue, and so everything is crunchy sounding. Um, it, it sounds like it's sometimes it's coming through like an AM radio and, and I totally understand why, because it, you know, you're having to fit a lot of recorded dialogue on a game disc. Yeah. And so I, I totally understand, right. This is initially coming out for the PS3 and Xbox 360, like generation, I guess first yeah. on PS3. Again, um, there's like multiple movies worth of shit in here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, easily. Yeah. No, no question. And so, but that really sticks out. Like. There's no, because of the compression, vocal inflection kind of gets lost. And God, so, that's a good point. Uh, I think so, yeah, so, that's one reason why he sounds so whiny. Is because yes. he basically clips. When he's emoting strongly, he basically clips. Yes. And so he can either be up here, and he's very flat and plateaued all the way up here, or he can be down here, and he's very plateaued down here. Like, there's no dynamic range at all. Um, and it really hurts. It hurts every single performance in in the game, um, except for people like Roy Phelps, who who I, I think people who I, I guess they didn't realize it. I don't know why you would know this, but there are actors who chose a kind of um, a, a noir stereotype voice. And so yeah. they're going up and down within the same kind of range quite a bit. And they're doing that. And those work perfectly fine. Because they're not, you know, they don't have peaks and valleys in significant ways. Uh, and I don't know. So it's a really interesting moment where the the technical affordances of the game are running into what actually gets produced at the end of the day. And it makes a big difference. It's also just like hard to listen to. Um, yeah. Not not pleasant. Um, so the other the other part of this is. The game is also trying to be a detective game, and this is especially true <laughs> yeah. in the earlier stages where like you start out with Phelps in uh, the traffic squad uh, after being promoted to detective and you're kind of doing a lot of um, low level casework. Uh, and so like the early part of the game is part tutorial and part you are just shotgunning a very bog standard police procedural of catch a case, go uh, visit a crime scene, find evidence, ha add it in your journal, uh, then interview a handful of witnesses um, and like the final cutscene triggers and like the case sort of resolves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the thing that they've staked everything on here is this notion of the interrogation. And yes. like the nature of detective work in this game is you gather evidence mostly so that you can crack suspects in interrogation. And how do you crack them? Uh, you play a sort of reactive Simon Says game where you watch their like you hear what they're saying. You 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 watch the claims they're making and you try to figure out, um, you know, you, you basically you can believe you can say, oh, they're telling the truth and your character will proceed as if they're telling the truth. Uh, you can doubt them which basically means exploding in their face with a huge aggressive bluff um, and being like, you're full of shit and to see if that rattles them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or you can like pull the evidence and say like, I know you're lying uh, because I know X. And if you present the right piece of evidence, uh, you know, they, they basically crack and they reveal whatever it is they're hiding. And, and crucially, you have to use all of these at the right moment. Um, if you deploy them at the wrong moment, uh, you don't get the information you need. And even more disruptively, 
You also get a scene that feels completely out of context. Um, Cole Phelps, in order to sell this this mechanic that you know you choosing the right response is going to result in a successful or unsuccessful interrogation. Phelps has to fuck up the interrogation if you choose the wrong response. And that often means like, you know, I think I wrote about this at the time. I wrote a piece over on Gamers with Jobs uh, about it back then where like you will hear something and you're like, I just have a vibe. That's not true. Like it doesn't totally square with what I my theory of the case. Um, OK, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to press them a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to doubt them. Um, and. Phelps, instead of sort of tugging at the threads or like applying a little bit of pressure, instead immediately almost like busts out the heat lamp um, and just begins like screaming in people's faces. Uh, and so this is the other thing is the game. Part of the way it works is it paints a picture of kind of a shitty detective who has no touch for people. Um, or the ability to like read them. And yet the game is all about reading people. It's just that it depends on you figuring out the cues. Um, and to make that work, the cues are really broad. Yeah. Um, which, which really is visible in the 4k up res, you know, um, playing it on Xbox series X version of the game right like i can imagine if i were playing this on like the 13 inch crt television that i had when i first had an xbox 360 right i can imagine those big broad emotions being very helpful when i'm looking at it in this very tiny way and you know it's kind of commendable in that way that they were like all right we're gonna have people who are gonna be playing this on a lot of different you know sizes and aspect ratios and things like that how are we going to be able to make sure that they know that someone is lying right so like someone tilting their head down not looking at phelps blinking a lot you know they're they're hugely exaggerated um but uh but uh in, in at this point right and in, in the so very visible now on on you know a standard size television the other thing about it too though is that uh, each character that you interrogate has a different tell and none of them are related to one another. So sometimes you could just be like, I guess that's the, what they, what they're, what they look like when they're lying. I don't really know. Like maybe that's the case. And then you go for it and lo and behold, there's only two questions in this interrogation and you just got half of it wrong by just not really knowing one way or the other. Is this their tell for lying or they're telling for not? Uh, and so it's a little bit, um, it, it, it feels like a system that would reward you for save scumming and encourage you to save scum. Um, but you cannot save scum in this game. You can either restart an entire case or you can continue playing where you are. So they like heavily, heavily punish you for doing it. Um, and so it means, I, you know, in, in, I don't know if this is a positive or a negative, maybe is what I, what I, I'm trying to say here on one hand, you can go through a whole case exactly like you just said, which is like, I have a hunch that I know how this is working. I've got some clues. The game won't recognize the clues that I have in the way that I'm reading it. But I think that the game works this way. Or I think this case is working this way. And so you kind of pursue that to the best of your ability and you just mess up every um, interrogation and you fail the case at the end. And the game's just like, yeah, you did a bad job. You did a dishonorable job here. Um, and And that's kind of... You know, I think that that is probably bad game design in a broad sense, and that that probably makes everyone feel bad. It certainly doesn't make me feel good. But on the other hand, I'm like, this is the most appropriate film noir thing that I could be doing here, which is like, 
I've got a little bit of the truth, but not enough of the truth. And I'm kind of beefing it all the way through. And yep, I didn't get it. <laughs> and, and so when I failed, I actually failed a couple cases while I was playing through or like did them as poorly as humanly possible. And uh, the game just kind of keeps going. They just let you do whatever you're doing. And I thought that was really cool um, that, that the game's bad systems um, still produce some sort of interesting emotion in me as a player. Uh, when that is not the case 99% of the time, uh, when a game has a bad system, I'm not like, oh, that was an interesting kind of friction with me. I'm like, oh, I have wasted my time. What am I doing here? Yeah, and I think it's it's helped by the fact that the game is explicitly, the game is full of, like, loose ends. Um, mm-hmm. The early, the other part of these early cases, uh, particularly once you get on the trail of a serial killer, um, yep. and this is the other thing about this game, there's so much going on. It, one of its opening ploys is a notorious L.A. serial killer um, mm-hmm. of like the 1950s. And it's like, we're going to do that case. And it's like, it's like if you threw the movie Zodiac into the middle of like a multi-season detective show about something completely different. It has nothing to do with that. That's how, how it comes across. It's like, well, we're going to do, <laughs> yes. we're going to do the Dahlia killings. Uh, okay, I guess we're doing the, the Dahlia killings. And one of the ways that's going to unfold is you keep getting these cases and you keep clearing them with really obvious suspects. You know, you basically are doing vari- variations on the butler did it. And each time you and Phelps are both like, is that track? Like, the th- like you've done the job. The, the game is happy. It's like, that's an honorable job. That's good detecting. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, but... Also, the story that we've ended up telling is kind of bullshit. It doesn't really track. Um, and there's obvious, like, other threads we should be pulling. And, like, the LAPD and the persona of your supervisor is like, nope, uh, let's dust off our hands. We're done here. Uh, on to the next case. And so it's it's kind of a clever thing in that you can fuck up and the game just keeps a rolling. But also, you can kind of see... Well, even when you're doing your job right, the cops are <laughs> yeah. fucking up right and left and they just keep a rolling uh, because they're not actually that interested in knowing what's actually going on. In fact, they in many ways don't want to know uh, what's going on. The less the less you know, the better. And so I think that ends up kind of helping the game. The noir framing ends up helping the game because it explains why things can still pr- progress even when things are going wildly wrong. And mm-hmm. it also explains why no matter what you do, you can't actually get to the real truth until like very late in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it the whole game is deeply cynical about the police um, in a way that I that that I don't remember anyone really ever commenting on uh, in a broad sense. I remember. Um, so I remember yeah. people being startled by the casualness with which people are like, oh, man, it's just a fucking video game because these mm-hmm. cops gun people down right and left in a super casual manner. And it doesn't like raise any eyebrows. And like now, like one. Our feelings about the police have changed a lot, and we're now keenly aware of how often, uh, quote unquote, officer involved shootings um, certainly involve like malfeasance and, uh, you know, corruption, but also, you know. It's easy to underrate um, how violent like the LAPD of the 1950s actually was. Um, So, yeah, I I think 
there's there that's the thing I remember um, is that people are like, man, these cops just kill people right and left. Like Kel Phelps just like gunned down three people just like in a side mission on his way to another case. <laughs> yes. um, that's what I remember. Well, and there's so many times in the game too, like a, a, a beat that this game loves to go for. And, and you can really feel in those moments, how thin the kind of interactions toolbox is in this game. But uh, what it goes for constantly is you're talking to someone and you're questioning them and they just run away. Right. Or like you come in the front door of a business and whoop, they're out the back door and you have to chase them. And in a huge number of those opportunities, uh, you have the option to just shoot them in the back. Like you could just pull your, your weapon and shoot them rather than tackling them and taking them down. And the game just kind of treats that. I mean, sometimes it's, it, it says, well, you can't do that. Um, but a, a good number of times the game just lets you choose whichever strategy you're interested in. And that that is also kind of telling about its, I think, position toward toward policing. But but yeah, for the most part, the entire kind of uh, police uh, philosophy here is going along to get along. Right. Like and some characters just say that directly. You know, they say, look, I uh, I'm I'm interested in clearing cases and getting to retirement. I'm not interested in anything else. And in fact, that's actually the big part of the the murder investigation um, that that kind of beat that you're on is that your partner just is a shitty dude <laughs> who is not interested. He's interested in arresting people. He is not interested in figuring out anything about what happened uh, with a murder. Um, so, and that's actually you know the weird thing that happens with the flow of this game is that when you get to that part um, and you're like kind of unraveling this conspiracy, that's also when a lot of the um, I don't know, framing devices or, or maybe maybe the toolbox of the game gets smaller even more than maybe that's the best way of saying it, because the traffic in the first few chapters of the game, first few cases of the game, there's like a narrator, like a third person narrator who's talking that just goes away. That just disappears. Uh, the first missions have you doing all kinds of interesting stuff like, oh, we recovered a weapon. Let's go to the local gun store and have them run the serial number and tell me who bought it. All that kind of stuff goes away. Um, you know, by the midpoint of the game, almost every investigation is just go to this node. Um, you, you find something that tells you more about the next node you go to, and then you kind of progress that way. And the, the, whether you solve the case well or not has everything to do with, did you go to all the nodes? Did you find all the nodes? Did you find all the stuff on the ground? Whereas at the beginning of the game, there's a lot more, um, additional things to do with the things you find. And so it, it, that that contributes to this feeling of like, yes, we are only here to make the arrest and we're only here to solve the case. We are not here to do anything other than the thing right in front of us. Um, and and like you're saying, right, that ends up in a, like, I mean, canonically within the plot of the game, whether you do things right or wrong, Cole Phelps got it wrong as far as those murders are concerned. Um, and it, it ends up hitting this other cynical note of you find the person who did it and they're the sibling of like a senator. And so you can't arrest them. Um, you can't do anything. I think actually you, you end up murdering them, but yeah. uh, they can never be revealed that they were truly the Dahlia killer. Right. Um, and, and all the and people so, you arrested, which is a pretty yes. big list at this point. They're like, we're going to yes, quietly like cut the five loose. people. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, they're going to evidence will be lost or oh, whatever. Right. And so like those people have to go live their life, you know, having been arrested for for that. I do like that when you you find him at the end, he's like in a church and you're having to run through all of these like Roger Corman Poe film sets basically that he lives in. That's a really interesting touch to, uh, you know, to add this like gothic, like 1950s exploitation horror gothic thing into the middle of L.A. Noir. It's like they couldn't help themselves, right? Like, oh, we want to, we got to do it. Um, um, I thought that was really great. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I think one of the things that does end up warming me up slightly to Phelps is that one of the arcs of this is that he gets a series of partners who are just kind of there to mark time. And yes. again, like, you know, you sort of call, call this out they're kind of held hostage to you as a player and you're kind of forcing them to do more than they want. But in the end, with the exception of Roy Earl, it turns out all your partners end up being kind of good detectives. Um, And you're sort of left with that notion of, okay, well they might be kind of bad, lazy cops, but given what we know of the LAPD in this game, it's like, well, that's probably the moral choice, right? If you're, if you're stuck in this line of work, um, best not to try too hard at it um, for for this for this department. Um, but like you know, Bukowski ends up being a a pretty conscientious cop when he's sort of presented as a slacker at the start. Your uh, the the homicide cop you're paired with, uh, Rusty, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> is this like Harvey Bullock character who just kind of treats you like shit, but eventually is like, eh, fine, we'll go be a real detective and like is okay at it. And the last guy you meet, um, who I think is the narrator at the start of the game. Um, yeah, I believe so. Herschel. Um, he kind of represents, and I wish the game kind of did more with this. He's this guy who, who kind of, um, his whole deal is like, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to shoot anybody. Um, he's kind of like, if Phelps lived to old age, maybe Phelps yeah. turns into this guy, right? Where, yes. where he's just kind of a, laid back cop trying to do the best job he can, but also is like, you know, I'm not here for, for violence. I am just trying to like make life a little bit better in, in, in the city. And part of that is, you know, he's um, another character sort of marked by the, the last war, uh, world war one. Um, and sort of, again, closes the loop on this, this theme of like the relationship between like society and the wars it fights. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. As you're saying, he is this kind of what if for Cole Phelps and the, the, you know, um, Rusty is a pretty good detective who is just not interested in doing his job. He's, he's counting the days until retirement. He is, he's drinking on the job at like 8am. You know, he's that stereotype of a character. Um, Bukowski is on, on the way up in the same way that Cole is, uh, but he is not as motivated, maybe, right? So you, he, you get this kind of, as you're saying, like this kind of slacker vibe, but he, at the end of the day, will do it, right? Herschel is someone who once did the damn thing. You know, he was Cole Phelps and also had some sort of falling. You know, it's unclear what happened there to the point where, I, I, you know, I think that when you meet him, uh, he's like, yeah, I don't work. Arson doesn't work partners. I don't want a partner. 
um, and they they kind of make that happen. And you find out very quickly that unlike the other two who are just not that interested in looking too closely, he's good at his job. He's a good detective, but he's just in a in in arson. There's only ever two reasons that, you know, houses burn down. It's like either an accident or it is legitimately arson and it's for insurance fraud. And those are the only two outputs. And so that case is or that that kind of desk, I guess, is what the game calls them, is really fascinating because it moves you through some really weird very, very like uh, specific plot points. So like Herschel is, you know, they a few houses burn down and they realize that it has to do with the water heater. And so, you know, the water heater is malfunctioning, but a water heater malfunctioning shouldn't burn a whole house down. So what's going on there? So, you know, Herschel introduced you to the fire chief and the fire chief is also revealed to be like a crack detective for fires. And you have to go to the fire station and they do a um, an experiment like them in com- in conversation with your technical services people who we haven't even talked about. But uh, they have figured out this like science experiment to show exactly how using, you know, mosquito coils and a balloon and the, the pilot light. Um, exactly how these houses are burning down and you literally perform the experiment as a mini a mini game and then like you do it and Cole Phelps is like oh my god then that means it is arson and it's just really specific and weird in a way that the rest of the game really is not right the murder cases are murder cases that turn into a conspiracy the traffic cases are uh, traffic cases that kind of take you around the city and make you do different things. The uh, the vice cases are getting down and dirty, you know, with the the, um, the, the underclass epidemic. of the city. Yeah, 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 yeah. The um, morphine, the military surplus morphine epidemic. And uh, but this one, you know, t- takes it turns you into like a detective scientist of doing this really specific work that is. Really, really interesting. Um, and, and it's because Herschel wants to do it, right? You know, once he's on board, he is on board. And he's just as capable as Phelps is. And, uh, you know, there's there's a way of writing this game that just kind of uh, plays that out. And Phelps learns from the older version of himself how to, you know, quote unquote, fix himself and not be such a jerk about everything and not be so concerned with moving up in the world. And he becomes a good detective who takes out Roy, right? Like that's, that's the the expectation of what could happen here. And the game totally swerves from that to do the other thing, um, you know, with the other, with Jack Kelso. Um, And it's really, as you're playing it, and especially as I played it, which is like basically mainlining this entire game over the course of a week or something like that, maybe a little bit longer, it it really kind of works, you know, in TV show style, um, because there's a lot of cases in this game. There are. Um, And yeah, it does benefit, like, I also mainlined it, and it is, I think that, you know, like like a lot of times, like a lot of things, we talk about this a lot as critics, Um, a lot of us end up experiencing games at concentration levels that that probably doesn't show them off to their best advantage. Yeah, um, for sure. Because like, oh, I can see how sitting down and doing a couple cases in a session, that could be fun, relaxing. Okay, I've done 10 cases and all of them <laughs> were mediocre and I hate this game. Like that's kind of <laughs> what happens at times while you're playing this. Um, but yeah, like, God, there's so much happening in this game because like you also have a Mickey Cohen appearance again, like yeah. played by a, a Mad Men uh, alum. Um, oh, a Mad Men alum. I think you mean the man who dies behind the diner in Mulholland Drive. 
Patrick <laughs> Fischler. <laughs> um, but all of this ties into the other thing that's happening in the background of this game is they're keeping these sort of run-ins with Cole's past life as a Marine and mm-hmm. uh, his old unit. And there's sort of this this reference to the Coolidge heist um, that all this like military surplus shit vanished um, off this troop transport back home. And in the late stages of the game, when you, when you shift perspective over to Kelso, um, who, yeah, as we said, was the platoon sergeant, uh, serving under Phelps, um, also the actual probable, probable war hero of that unit. Um, unlike Phelps is sort of, well, you've, you fucked up so bad. We have no choice, but to give you a medal and, uh, hide the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kelso's become this uh, this private investigator, and he sort of ends up closing the loop on, okay, a lot of our old unit got involved in some seriously bad shit. Um, and the game's last revelation is Kelso kind of knew it was about to break bad, right? Like, the game kind of closes on this return to the transport ship home um, when the other key figure of your unit, Courtney Sheldon, is was kind of the, the unit medic, the corpsman. And he is the guy who is coming back and um, is just really pissed off both by what happened in the war and also the speed at which um, guys just being sort of tossed into civilian life with, with, with sort of minimal resources, um, mm-hmm. you know, no real... Um, no real material help readjusting nor like getting their lives, uh, you know, back together and, uh, you know, getting, getting a career. Sheldon wants to be a doctor, but, um, you, you sort of learn at the end that on the transport ship home, he kind of has this bright idea of like, we could just steal all this shit on the ship. It's military surplus. No one's going to use it. Um, uh, it's just gonna, it's gonna just gonna be junk. So he's like, he's starting to warm up to the pitch of telling the other guys in the unit Hey, we could just take the stuff and uh, you know start with a decent little nest egg, and Kelso basically, again, like to this theme of ambivalence, Kelso doesn't want to hear more. Um, this is kind of the entire action of the game being set in motion, in some ways. And Kelso, we learn aboard this ship that they're eventually going to rob, is like, I don't want to hear any more of this. You're going down a dangerous path, and he, he says this line that stuck with me for years. He looks at Sheldon, uh, you know, and he says, trouble follows you around like a pet fucking dog. Um, and that ends up being the guy. He's just he's just. A, he's just a bad seed uh, in mm-hmm. the unit. And Sheldon is going to fuck up and fuck up again until a ton of the Marines are dead. And until Sheldon uh, is dead because he gets in too deep with the heroin trade and then ends up getting using funds from that to get caught up in this um, like land fraud. Mm-hmm. But the, the late game is all about sort of piecing together. Oh, all these guys who were this military unit, um, you know, fighting in the Pacific, it turns out all of them are still involved in each other's lives just via these invisible connections of like crime and corruption in LA. And it's kind of Kelso putting that together of like, so many of our guys have gotten taken out um, in, in this underworld shit. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of guys struggling and it's sort of Kelso putting it together that like there is the, both 
this massive land fraud uh, in progress. And also that his and Phelps old unit are up to their eyeballs and basically everything that's gone wrong in this entire game. Yeah, I mean, they're th- this heist sets the other than I guess the the serial killings that happen. Almost everything else that is like a major crime that occurs in the game is in some way leading back to this. Um, you know, and whether that's the kind of underground like gang war that's kind of happening with Mickey Cohen, or that's directly you know um, unrelated crimes happening, and this morphine being there and obviously being a part of that. Um, you know, it all comes back to this. And, and that last scene is also really poignant, too, because there's still the sneaking suspicion, even after you've played Jack Kelso, that that Kelso was involved in stealing the the morphine. You know, yeah. uh, uh, Phelps asserts and believes and certainly in the case where that's being investigated, where the morphine is being investigated, um, there is the belief that the Marines are, um, you know, they've returned to civilian life and they're all just living their lives and that Jack Kelso is kind of the the ringleader, and he's so smart, right? He's so capable when it comes to manipulating Cole Phelps that that you know the the setup here, the narrative setup is that just like in the war when Cole Phelps was an ineffective leader, and Jack Kelso was there, you know, one upping him essentially, right? And one upping him in the sense of keeping his people from being killed. Um, uh. In, in just the same way that that happens during the war, now we are back in civilian life and the same thing's happening, right? Jack Kelso's taking a bad turn, but here he is still doing the thing that he was doing the whole time, which is proving effortlessly that he is better than Cole Phelps. And that's what you're kind of left with. Even when you're playing with Jack Kelso, it's really unclear if he was involved in that or not. And this, you know, this final flashback scene shows up at the end to be like, no, Jack Kelso, in fact, rejected this at its very original moment. And maybe if Cole Phelps had been a little bit less of a jackass and, you know, willing to um, willing to be a little bit more humble. Right. And and getting this kind of chip off his, off of his shoulder and being willing to ask Jack Kelso for help more directly. A lot of this maybe could have been avoided. Um, you know, there, there's the sense, too, that the relationship, the bad relationship between Cole Phelps and his entire unit just came right back home too. you know, the, yeah. the big, the, the big reveal at the end of the game is that the arsons are being done by a member of their, uh, team. Um, Boom. Y- yes. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that a real name? Son, like, do people have that name? I'm going to raise you to be a crazed hillbilly, uh, <laughs> in a video game noir. Okay. Dad, what's my name? Ira Hogaboom. <laughs> and yeah, so he's like this, he's painted this very stereotypical, you know, um, uh, shell-shocked, you know, kind of uh, post-traumatic stress uh, uh, um, flamethrower trooper who is like religiously obsessed when he comes back and he's burning families alive and, and all of the stuff at the behest of insurance fraud and all of the stuff, right? He's like the lowest person um, in the hierarchy and he's just murdering people, but he has like a reason to do it because, you know, he's scarred by the war. It's a lot of stereotypes about all of these things crammed into one another. But the additional um, kind of move here is that 
uh, Cole Phelps knows as soon as this character shows up, as soon as Hogaboom shows up, he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm to blame for this, aren't I? <laughs> like, I did this. I and, did and have that guy out. burn that entire village. Uh, no, uh, burn a uh, go into a cave that is being used as a hospital and then burn everyone alive in there. And when those people were not dead from being burned, um, having my soldiers execute them one by one. And there's like this whole flashback scene where um, uh, I mean, this is where we find out, you know, kind of how Cole Phelps exits the war is that Courtney says, uh, no, you know, we're not going to do it. If you want to kill all of these civilians, you can do it yourself. And Cole Phelps won't do it. You know, he turns away and he says, get it done. And he leaves. And uh, Courtney just shoots him in the back, you know. And and it's this moment of, you know, kind of ripping through a lot of our um, cultural beliefs about the Second World War, right? You know, this idea of and, – and this is not the first time that a discussion of killing Cole Phelps, killing their commanding officer, is floated by a character in these flashbacks. They, they say it more than one time. Um, and I think that the record on World War II has actually moved a little bit further away from the kind of, um, you know, uh, rah-rah imagery we have of that and that that commanding officer killings were actually much more common than than we believe. We, that normally gets stuck to the Vietnam War, right? But yeah. um, I think that that was much more common than our kind of cultural narrative um, uh, now. Or, you know, certainly our cultural narrative around Saving Private Ryan, uh, Band of Brothers uh, would have you believe. Well, yeah, I mean, but, it's... Banner Brothers has that one episode where they have a bad CO, and you are, are like, talking you about can't David watch Schwimmer? it and not think all these dudes know he's going to get people killed. Mm-hmm, like now, mm-hmm. extend that over an entire campaign. How often do you let a guy like that fuck up before you're like, look, a lot of things can happen in combat. Um, you can't fire your boss in the middle. You know what I mean? You can't report <laughs> yeah. your boss. Um, but yeah, and that's kind of who Phelps is. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, inept at command, and then also moral coward. Um, yes. Who's like, I don't like burn out that cave. I don't give a shit what's in there. Yeah. And, uh, and part of the reason too, I mean, there's a lot of setup that that's really great because part of the reason that it happens is that Phelps is so methodical about burning everything. I think they're on Okinawa, right? Yeah. Um, he is so methodical that his, um, uh, his unit is running behind every other unit. And so the reason that he ends up killing all of these civilians uh, and, or commanding his, his soldiers to kill all these civilians is that he, is, he knows he is falling behind and failing and he's trying to catch up. So it's like it's this huge kind of mix of, um, you, I don't know, just failure across the board of him as, as a human being, right? Um, and someone who is, I mean, doing the job of war, which is, is nightmarish and, uh, morally, you know, uh, uh, awful, right. You know, the killing of other human beings is just, just a nightmare of a thing. But the, the kind of idea that he is part of a bureaucracy of it and is trying to kind of do better at that bureaucracy by hurrying up and killing civilians is just so much more nightmarish to me. Yeah. And yeah, he's, he is this sort of, and I think this is maybe one of the ways he becomes a more interesting character in retrospect is he is now so easy to read as a desperate striver of the meritocratic ladder um, in a way that I think we're much more keenly aware of. You know what I mean? Like someone who mm-hmm. just sees everything as this opportunity to gain, to advance, but it requires both being a rule follower, but also knowing when to basically fudge the rules so you can just keep progressing and you hit yeah. like unreasonable targets, let's say. Um, 
And this is kind of Phelps's problem is that he's really more of a rule follower. He's more of a proceduralist. Um, but he has no he has no touch for anything. He has no feel. Um, he doesn't know where to cut corners uh, or or when he's just got to go or bend the rules. Um, and this is one of the things that leads to his downfall. And it's why he's kind of bad as commander as well. Like he's he's always reading from the manual and never really looking at what's in front of him um, until the very end where he's, you know, mildly redeemed uh, by basically abandoning the police uh, work to go team up with Kelso. Um, Mm -hmm. but even that is almost like it turns into Kelso sorted out the Kelso and his Marine buddies have sorted (laughs) out the land fraud (laughs) in the best possible way, overrunning the dude's compound with machine guns, um, and killing the guy's private army and fucking him up. Um, but then the end of the game is like, Hoga has got Elsa and so you got to go, uh, you know, of mice and men, poor Ira Hogaboom. Um, Basically, yeah. I mean, he, he is written and treated almost exactly in that mode. Yeah. He's like, he, he's not a fully realized character. He's just a, a poor, dumb, traumatized rube um, who, uh, you know, begins compulsively burning people. Um, and yeah, so the game kind of ends with with that where like we we see all these things come full circle uh the surviving marines are sort of brought together to kick ass um and take out leland monroe um phelps and kelso are forced to make their peace but also reckon with hogaboom a character they both kind of abandoned um after after the war a a soldier they knew was struggling was probably prone to struggle and they just kind of forgot about um like they forgot a lot about a lot of of their of their old comrades um you know sheldon is dead um because he doesn't understand how badly he's fucked up and gotten the crew into waters they have no business swimming in um and still doesn't know who to trust by the end and so yeah, at the end, like, you know, when we when we get, when we get that cutscene to uh the transport home and like almost all these characters are dead, we we sort of realize, you know, okay, this this entire thing has been about the fate of this uh Marine unit that is wrestling with the guilt over the brutality that they were a part of uh in the Pacific War. And ultimately I think that salvages a game that I think in its first half can be so uneven. And like in the first half of the game, I can sort of see like every issue people have with this game and every issue I had with it. I'm like, it's, you know, the casework can be really janky and the cases can be kind of boring. Um, it's full of like weird action set pieces that get a bit exhausting and are less interesting than, than the interrogations. Um, but in the second half of the game, I think it steadily ramps up and becomes more and more interesting until we get that finale of most of the bad guys skate and are sort of recast as the good guys in the official record. And meanwhile, all of this is about, um, you know, what happened to this, what, what happens to soldiers after we lose interest to them, lose interest in them uh, as soldiers. Yeah. And it's really interesting, too, to kind of square that with what we know historically uh, in the sense that, like, I'm sure that 
that, uh, you know, in in the uh, years after World War II, there are a lot of people kind of coming home and wondering what's what's next for them and what's happening and things like that. And the game kind of sets the stage for that, right? You know, really easily demonstrating that lots of the LA suburbs are being built and that's entirely financed by the GI Bill. But, you know, we think immediately of the post-war period, certainly from the perspective of 2021, is this kind of um, moment of explosive economic growth, you know, obviously, uh, you know, and ascendant American power, but also with um, radical upward mobility for the people who were able to receive the benefits of the GI Bill in a broad sense, right? So uh, the characters who this, the, the, the weird thing to look back on this game, right, and think about is that the characters who this game is about are the ones who received the largest and most significant um, certainly family uh, wealth benefits of the Second World War, right? They, they came back to employment and home loans and the ability to go to college and the ability to participate in, you know, the exploding technocracy that was the United States. And so it's really interesting to have this kind of friction of, you know, kind of statistically in the world's broadest sense, what we know about what happens to this class of people of white men who return to the United States after World War II, and then this kind of like on the ground story, which presumably is based on research that has a much more ambivalent relationship to that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that it's necessarily educational in that regard, but it, but it, I thought it was really interesting of in the sense that it made me think a little bit more about my um, uh, I don't know the, the things that I feel like I'm very comfortable knowing about, um, this moment in time. Um, and I will say that the game is a pretty massive failure when it comes to really thinking through the implications of what it means for all these people to come home. You know, the, the, the big maneuver is, uh, about these homes that are being built and the highway and all these different things. But the game is very uninterested in thinking about like who that impacts, who lives in L.A. beforehand, <laughs> before this massive influx of people back from the war who are from all the way around the United States, but lots of whom are staying in California? Um, and so there are a couple cases that deal, uh, you know, explicitly um, with black characters, for example. But lo and behold, for the most part, they're jazz players um, and they're jazz players who are hooked on heroin. Um, there are a couple that are are um, uh, focused on um uh, uh, I, I, I guess is for the most part, uh, Mexican nationals who are living in the United States. There's like a market yeah. owner who, who there's a case about him. And so there's a little bit of focus on that, but then they, that kind of disappears too. And so it's this interesting thing where it's a, a story about crime and LA and it's trying to do this maneuver that, that all of LA based noir are doing, which is like, the city is one of the characters. Rob, did you know that uh, the fifth character in L.A. Noir, uh, the, the, the fifth the city of angels. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. It's trying to do that thing, but then it is wholly uninterested in like the actual people who live there. And, and it's really interested in history and the layout of the city and what did it look like at the time. And I know that Team Bondi spent a lot of time modeling that. Uh, but then they're not really interested in playing uh, or or giving us the opportunity to kind of explore what that what that was really like outside of this pretty thin slice of people that um, the LAPD is interacting with here, uh, which I don't think then or now is really the primary slice of people that the LAPD is interacting with. No, and you even have characters who are like it's referred to, oh, so-and-so, maybe it's the first dude you work with, like, 
um, came to notoriety during the Zoot Suit Riot. Um, and that is, as is often the case, less a riot than an explosion of like white racial hatred. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, but again, like it's referred to, the game is aware this existed, but it's not really interested in, okay, well, what are the ramifications of that? Uh, this is recent LA history, um, you know, that sort of resonated for years within the city. And yet no real discussion of like, you know, Mexican or Chicano, uh, you know, groups in the in the city and their relationship uh, yeah, to the LAPD. And yeah, you got a story about like even at the time and I'm playing this as you're discussing like this notion of these returning GIs and it's like, hey, what's in it for us? Well, in general, I do think um, a lot of like white GIs being discharged did have a lot of doors open to them uh, for, for a lot of aid and a lot of resources. But if you want to talk about like, you know, GIs who who didn't, you're talking about uh, you know, black GIs, uh you're talking yeah, about other other minorities um who not only didn't just because of like racism in America didn't have the same doors open to them just when it came to like applying for jobs, but also specifically were exposed to predations uh, from banks and denied opportunities uh, that a lot of white soldiers enjoyed. And so I think like one of the things hanging over this is, you know, Courtney Sheldon, it's kind of like, dude, you're going to medical school. Like the GI Bill, like what, what do you want? Like I, under, like, I understand the, it's, it's still resonant that the game is like, yeah, you know, soldiers serve America and they come back and America kind of t- turns its back on them. They feel like they don't get a share in what's been won, except that might have never have been less true than the World War II generation. There's no bonus mm-hmm. marchers that emerge from World War II. Um, we don't get anything like that, um, at least not among like white GIs. Um, and so like Sheldon would make a hell of a lot more sense as anything other than what he is, which is a white upwardly mobile, uh, you know, Corman come doctor. And yeah, like this is, this is one of the frustrations of LA noir is like, there's things that it wants to pull at and there's things it wants to explore. Um, but it's sort of myopic focus on the sorts of people who show up in, Hollywood movies of the 1950s and yeah, in yeah. Hollywood movies of the 1990s. Um, you know, it, it ends up reducing the racial complexities of LA to background stereotypes. Yeah. And, you know, things just disappear, which, which shouldn't be disappearing. You know, uh, I mean, where, where is the aftermath of Japanese internment here? Yeah. Um, feels like if you've got a dense area, a, a, a densely urban area that's developing, in the years immediately after World War II, uh, you know, a, a huge population who has been interned in camps and divested of their property and had their lives in shambles, who are now returning to that community, seems like a pretty big uh, missing piece. And I don't know exactly how that interfaced with L.A., but it couldn't it cannot be the case that no one went to L.A. afterward. Right. You know, I, I don't know enough about it specifically to, to point to the specific gaps, but I can feel knowing what I know. And look, I guess, you know, the answer here is like, don't think too hard about it. This is a genre game that is playing in the genre, um, you know, toolbox, or, you know, the playground, the uh, the sandbox, whatever, uh, just deal with it. And okay, that's perfectly fine. But like, I don't think you can try to lean so hard on 
um, historical markers and just pretend like some don't exist. And if the excuse is like, well, we just watched a bunch of movies and uh, that never appeared. So what do we do with that? Well, you, uh, you know, maybe watch some other movies, right? Like watch Bad Day at Black Rock and get back to me. The ultimate Western noir. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't know. It just seems like after the game is over, I have this weird uh, emotion or you know, set of emotions, I guess, where I'm like, this really, and it could be just because the first half of the game is like so kind of grating at some points, but, you know, wow, I've really been won over. I'm very surprised by that. This actually, you know, actually sunk the shot at the end. I'm impressed by what happened. And then, you know, now a couple weeks after finishing, uh, you know, a few weeks after finishing, I guess, I'm now like, damn, there are some massive, <laughs> huge holes in the way that this game constructed its world where if it had thought about these things even a little bit, it would go from a pretty good game to a really good game, you know, kind of a game that maybe deserves um, uh, multiple remasters and ports and all of these different things, um, you know. And I don't think there's any universe in which we get L.A. Noir 2, right? I think that so much about the, the tech and the development of this game and the obvious production time costs and just building this apparatus, I just don't think that that is economically feasible anymore in a world where um, it's not a sure bet. You know, I still don't know if these mechanics and their basic assumption would be enough to, you know, sell this kind of game. So I think it'll live on as this weird kind of experiment that kind of worked and kind of didn't, but, uh, you know, kind of marred, I think, by some some big problems and big holes. Yeah, I I certainly end up wishing... Um I could see versions of this game being way better. Um, and I would have been mm. interested to see if this didn't end up being an evolutionary dead end. Um, but in part, like, I think this is also like a, a clear example of one of the things that happens when you completely burn your studio to the ground uh, in order to get a game out is that there's really nothing left to start the next project with. And people don't trust you with the next project. Right. Like I think team Bondi um, infamously, I think tried to get, uh, not a sequel, but like a different game off the ground. Um, inartfully titled Horror of the Orient. Um, Oof. And obviously that was not met with a lot of positive reception, but also, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not clear at all on the business stuff, but it never came close to getting off the ground. Um, and I think part of that is, you, you, you know, it certainly helps to have a studio left standing uh, when, when you finish a game, uh, if you're going to move on to the next one. Um, but, you know, the fallout from having burned through that team uh, and having the stories get out, um, you know, I think team Bondi had sort of rendered its brand kind of toxic uh, by the yeah. end, even by rockstar um, standards. Oh yeah. And you know, it, it certainly doesn't help, you know, there, there's a world uh, in which you burn your team to the ground as you're working. And after it's over, um, you show a little bit of remorse, any kind of remorse, but that is in fact the opposite of what happens. If you go back and read, you know, this is linked in my piece, but, um, it really is worth going and reading that IGN article. And then the follow-up, um, uh, game industry.biz did, uh, uh, like a follow-up about the leaked emails and all this kind of stuff that informed the big report. And you can, Brendan McNamara is quoted in it. I mean, they interviewed McNamara and got his statement on it. And he was like, yeah, this is what you do to make good video games. Like, I don't understand why everyone is so angry. Um, I This is what you have to do. If you want good work, you have to work this way. 
Um, and so it's like, you know, one could, you could imagine a, a scenario in which someone goes through like seven years of nightmare production and comes out the other end being like, oh yeah, this was not the way to do it. You know, I have to rethink the way that, that I manage and the way that I tell other people to manage other people. Um, obviously this didn't work. Like this, we were so stuck in that we had to just de deliver the game, right. To make it work. But I would never do this again. Um, and he just doubled down. <laughs> he was like, no way you get, this is what you have to do. Um, and you know, I, I think that he, he still works in the game industry, but, um, and I think was part of the VR remaster for this game, um, that came out a couple of years back or maybe last year, but yeah, has never been in that level of a thing again. And it's like, you know, it's not just that there's not enough to, um, to, there's not, a, it's not just that there's not enough of the team to make another game or keep going. It's that people learned a lot of skills during that time and they never want to work in the games industry again. Yeah. Um, and so it's not just that like, Oh, these people aren't all together anymore. It's that these people would want to do anything else with their life other than think about making a video game. And that that's like truly nightmarish. I mean, doing that to, to a person in uh, your workplace sucks. That's bad. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and like ruining them to an art form in some ways. Right. And yeah, I think there's lots of examples of games that we know were produced under really difficult uh, circumstances with, you know, really garbage uh, practices with regard to like balance um, and, and giving people their time. But yeah, the also the stinginess with credit. And the refusal to let yeah. people go out and take a bow was another part of this. Like, there's a lot of games where, like, it might have been a death march to get it out the door. But in the end, as the praise is rolling in, there's kind of a, hey, you know, the, yeah. As you said, you say the right things that are contrite. And then also you let people kind of stake their own claim to ownership of, like, what they did and, like, what they accomplished mm -hmm. with this. And none of that happened here. So it was like, um, it, it's kind of your still probably one of the clearest examples of like, okay, well, how can you make a, what seemed like a pretty successful game? Um, and, uh, one that got a lot of attention, um, and still kind of be left with nothing at the end. And I think, yeah, so much of that is both about the development and then also about the way that the creative lead, um, spoke about that development and mm -hmm. treated overtly, uh, treated members of that team as expendable, even in statements. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see it in the, you know, the leaked emails and you can see it in the discussion afterward. I mean, you know, it's rock star party line, you know, as far as crediting is concerned, you know, you got to be there to ship in order to be in the credits. And I think actually they, after reporting on Red Dead 2, right, they've, they've officially changed that policy. Um, but, you know, I don't think that in any way makes up for what you know team bondi did uh or or for what rockstar has done in the past right you know um i i've not seen anything about them correcting the credits of previous games right seems like you can update grand theft auto 5 a thousand times to add uh weird stuff into it you can maybe update the credits but um you know that that's a little bit of a, a side issue <laughs> Um, so we have a couple of emails uh, that came mm. in. Now, we, we covered a lot of them. A lot of people asking about, um, you know, the, the facial tech. Um, mm -hmm. But one of them does sort of ask a, something adjacent to that, um, but I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, Anonymous uh, writes, sorry, if you like, if you don't sign your email, 
you're anonymous, even if it has a like, even if your name is there uh, and you're not specifically requesting it. Um, so if you want us to read your name, just sign the email and we'll know you're cool. Um, anonymous writes L.A. Noir and shows like uh, BBC's Sherlock released the year before both really lean into this idea of being able to read body and facial expressions to discover definitively if a person is lying. Does L.A. Noir lean too much on that body language expert pseudoscience? Is it a convenient, cool gameplay device to show off their tech, or does it speak to an unwillingness for games to let their players experience anything less than an intellectual power fantasy? Um, do you see, like, yeah, so does, does it feel like this is sort of uh, tacitly like co-signing body language analysis? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> you know, I think, um, you know, body language is the soul in, in this uh, in this game and in this game's imaginary, you know. And yeah, it's 100 percent, you know, a power fantasy, a heroic fantasy that uh, a man can look into <laughs> whatever the quivering cheeks of a uh, um, uh, interrogation suspect and like know the truth. Now, what's great about that is that, like I was saying earlier, you don't know what tell is what tell, right? You don't know what tell reveals what. And so sometimes you just get the whole thing wrong, or at least I do. Maybe I'm just bad at the system, but sometimes you think one thing is something and you're going for it because for example, when they are lying and when they are saying something that is untrue that you can disprove with evidence, those are often two different facial expressions and knowing which is which is very unclear. Um, and so I, you know, I think that, you know, not to be, uh, Jacques Derrida here, but, uh, the, the thing in, as it's presented in the game, the mechanic as it is presented in the game and the power fantasy also in some ways contains its undoing. Um, you know, it reveals how ineffective it is at some points and how insufficient. And I think when you're interviewing Kelso during that vice case, I think you always fail that. I don't know if there's a correct way of getting through that. I think Kelso can always outmaneuver you. And so the it, maybe that's wrong. I don't know. Some Someone can let me know. But I, I think that there's a beauty in some places in the game to, um, you know, Phelps thinking he's got the magic and he's just got nothing. And uh, the game just kind of lets you flounder. So, but yeah, I think absolutely it's this, you know, fantasy of, um, physiognomy is the truth. And, yeah. um, I mean, that's fake, right? Um, now, yeah, I think I'm with you. I think the game undercutting it with the fact that Phelps is clearly often wrong or like not getting at the real story that he needs to get to. I think that helps with it. Um, I, I think it, to me, when I play this game, it often doesn't feel like a power fantasy because you're so obviously a, a schmuck um, in so many of these <laughs> yeah. cases where it's like, oh, man, like the game is saying I did a good job. And I know for a fact I did not like Phelps missed it. Like there's there's clear things that I as a player and it's just someone who like engages with the mysteries. I know this is a blown a, a blown case. Um, yes. And yet, like, the game is like, ha through the power of reading your reactions, I know that I think it does a good job with that. If you want to see the ultimate in, a, like, body language uh, power fantasy shit, um, Tim Roth's Lie to Me um, is, like, yes. the all-timer <laughs> yeah. goat of that. It is a, first of all, it is allegedly based on a true story, but it's, that's only true insofar as there was like a notorious like lie detection expert uh, in like the early 2000s who was like getting a lot of notoriety for supposedly like making advances in like, you know, like detect like scientifically verifiable um, uh, like methods for proving deception. 
all of that's basically been blown out of the water. Um, that shit ain't real. But an engaging series that is often about like watch Tim Roth just chew scenery as he goes like, there it is. <laughs> See, there it is. I know you're lying. <laughs> and you're like, fuck, yeah, you got him. Uh, how much do you think this also um, kind of comes into play with the fascination with poker culture in the early 2000s? Like, do you think those things oh, are related? Because, you know, there's shit. the poker explosion, right? Like the post rounders, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I've heard Chris Moneymaker. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and that was all about, you know, I remember so much in the early 2000s, like all of this discussion about people having tells, you know, looking down into the left. You couldn't turn on cable without seeing a bunch of shitheads and sunglasses uh, just like grimacing at each other. (laughs) Yeah. And so I wonder, you know, how much of this, all of these things are kind of related, right? That there's this kind of. Um, uh, I don't know, fixation with the truth being physical. Now, not to get too conspiratorial here, but we were going to learn, uh, you know, around the year 2003 that there was a physical uh, truth, supposedly, for a large lie that ultimately ended up not being there. I'll leave you to figure out what that was, uh, dear listener. But, you know, there's something weird going on in the early 2000s with uh, trying to find proof where nothing is and then just kind of proceeding as if the proof was there. Um. So, uh, Tenby writes, first time, long time, love your work. Not really a question per se, but just wanted to write because I recently replayed L.A. Noir for the first time since it launched and was very back and forward on the game. The vibes are immaculate, and when it hits, it hits good. I have a lot of thoughts about the bad stuff I won't bore you with. I mainly just want to say that it absolutely rocks that in the last third of the game, you're suddenly playing as an insurance investigator. I wish this was there was more of this in the game. An entire game of investigating insurance claims in post-war LA. Sign me up, baby. Maybe it's just the novelty after 20-something hours of playing as Cole Phelps, but I genuinely loved it. Cheers, Tenby. Uh... Yeah, I'm I'm with you there, and I think the the vibes are they are pretty immaculate. I think you know as as you alluded to the reconstruction of post war LA, which is in many ways a lost city uh, at this point, um, is incredibly cool, dude. When you go up like to the tar pits, for instance, that you see just like the vacancy <laughs> that's there, um, it's awesome. It's 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 good shit. Also, I want to shout out. Um, the soundtrack is really good, even if the way the game is scored is not. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's one of the other things is, as as with a lot of Rockstar games, there are times when the counterfeit is very successful. Um, and then there's times where it's very inartful. But I think one of the places that it can it, it really does great work is has a really cool, cool soundtrack. But I think as you point out in your piece also doesn't know how to score scenes in a way that like authentic films do. (laughs) Oh, not at all. Right. I I think the thing I wrote about in the piece is that it uses the Chinatown apartment uh, music, you know, or with those like ringing chimes when uh, uh, Geddes is like um, walking through this, this uh, apartment where a woman is dead. And, you know, we're really kind of being set up to look around a corner and find, you know, something nightmarish. And uh, yeah, so for whatever reason, uh, they basically just replicated that exact chimey soundtrack and it is over every single investigation in L.A. Noir or whatever it has to do with. And it's really weird. It's an odd choice. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so as I was like writing the piece and, and now a little bit afterward, 
I was listening to the Chinatown soundtrack and then listening to the L.A. Noir soundtrack like right afterward. And it's a fascinating like vibe cover album. You know, it's it's pretty close to that. Um, but but uh, yeah, well, to go back to the question really quickly, the um, I actually don't think I would want to play more Kelso. I think I got the exact amount of Kelso that I need. And yeah. the reason I say that is that I don't think that this game could sustain like insurance investigation very long. I think it would feel like Cole Phelps. And I think we would ultimately end up doing a lot more. Um, well, the last thing that Kelso does, maybe this is the way to say it. The last thing that Kelso does is that he goes to uh, Hoga Boom's like shack and it's a straight up like Zodiac, you know, house, right. Full of like weird uh, uh, imagery and like um, symbolic, like, you know, made things, tchotchkes, all this kind of stuff. And I feel like if this was a game about Jack Kelso's insurance investigation, it would be, it would have a hard time returning to the center and it would be just more and more Baroque investigations in like, you know, the Inland Empire in some ways. And that would be cool, but I think I would rather just play that game. You know, like, let's not put that in the 1950s. Let's put that in David Lynch's 2000s. Let's get a private investigator wandering through that. Um, I mean, that's the L.A. Noir game I want to play. I want to play L.A. Noir um, post-2000 uh, Nightmare City, you know, that that's half uh, Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, and half Southland Tales. <laughs> and, uh, you know, give me the investigation capability mechanics and let me loose in, like, uh, somewhere that is um, unhinged from reality in some way. I think playing Jack Kelso, um, you know, in reality in the 1950s is going to be a less interesting game ultimately than what LA noir is. Um, our last email comes from Evan greetings gumshoes. My question is now that you've played through LA noir again, do you think there's any evidence that LA noir has had any specific influence on the design of later detective and police games that came after it? In my mind, despite relative critical success, LA noir's broader critical reach didn't seem to go too far beyond press X to doubt uh, the goofy faces of Oswald Jacobs and maybe a gif of Cole Phelps falling down some stairs. Though perhaps I'm wrong about that. I guess I'm curious if you have any perspective or thoughts on whether the game's impact went further within the world of game development. Mm, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it seems like all those things that were just listed off are memes and like, I don't know any game that like kind of, you know, spontaneously generates a bunch of meme culture around it. Right. Um, that, that seems to like wax and wane to rhythms that are like unrelated to how successful quote unquote a game is. Um, I don't know. I, I I think, you know, I would be, I would be curious to talk to, you know, um, you know, the development team around telling lies, for example, right. To see exactly how much of this has to do with that game. Um, I think probably L.A. Noir is helpful, and this is pure speculation, but I think it's probably helpful as an orienting point in that if you want to make a game with some investigations in it, you can say, here's a game that's got a lot of investigations in it that kind of does some of it and kind of doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, here's what we're going to borrow from that. It was a relative success. That probably makes your job pitching that a lot easier. Um, I wonder if the Sherlock Holmes series or the investigations in The Witcher 3 or, you know, um, the the open world Batman games, uh, they're like investigations that you can do. Those all kind of feel like the way that, that the site investigations yeah. work in L.A. Noir. And I kind of 
I think it's kind of impossible for those designers not to have looked at this system and think, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? I think that The Witcher 3 in particular and the way that it um, it presents you very similar scenarios, but is really interested in like allowing you to use whatever it's called Witcher vision to like highlight clues and things like that. I think that it's trying to shore up some of the issues that are in LA Noir as far as like allowing you to see clues and find them easily. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think we've had enough, we've had enough, um, uh, site investigations after this game that the influence can't not be there, I think. But, Everything else, as far as like interviewing and things like that, I think the reality is is that you have to put a lot of game development resources to do something like the um, doubt, lie, whatever system. Um, and if if you know, uh, this is something we haven't talked about, but La Noir has a had a partner company that made the technology that made this possible, right? And in fact, I think that was part of the reason that Sony dropped them as a publisher and Rockstar picked them up as they'd sunk so much money into this uh, kind of facial mapping image tech. And uh, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to literally make a whole other technology to afford a game system, then you kind of can't commit to that as a pillar of development or whatever. So I understand why those things haven't showed up, but I think it has to be um, influential, at least in, in some parts. I don't know. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're... You've cited a lot of stuff. I might cite, I think. Um, but yeah, you're just not getting the full experience that L.A. Noir tried to be, probably because it's way too intensive. Like when I play, I'm playing Judgment right now. And like there are moments where it's like you have to prove to someone that, you know, they're full of shit. And you go into your case file and you pull the correct evidence. But like it's still the thinnest rendition of what L.A. Noir is trying to do. Um Again, in part because they also want to provide even fewer ways for it to feel dissonant, I think. Um, you know, mm -hmm. they never want you to feel like, you know, a dipshit the way Cole Phelps often does. Um, and so yeah, you're often yeah, set up absolutely. with just the easiest wins of uh, being like, well, I can I guarantee you I certainly wasn't in this particular alley at midnight, uh, you know, two nights ago. And you're like, well, I've got, you know, a security camera that shows you right there clearly being there. Like, that's kind of as far as it goes. Um, but, yeah, I don't think we've seen, uh, like, I think we see bits and pieces of these mechanics pop up elsewhere. I don't think we've seen a game, like, try to do as much with um, the concept of, like, simulating an entire investigation as L.A. Noir is attempting to do for, you know, as you allude to a lot of very good reasons yeah and, um, and when and when those things happen i think they're often in um you know the kind of indie game space or in the adventure game space i'm i'm blanking on the name of the game maybe the golden wake is the name of the game let me make sure that or a golden wake um is that a watch well, published by Watch It Eye, yeah. but developed by Grundislav. or maybe it's not published by it looks like it's published by Grundislav as well but yeah in that universe um, but it uh, it also oh Lamplight City maybe is the game I'm thinking of which is also by the same developer. Um, uh, but um, anyway, that, that's all to say. I, I think that there are teases of this kind of thing in other places, but often in places with much lower development costs and, and time yeah. sinks into them. Well, and there you're, you're saying like, well, you know, you can find a, find residue of this in adventure games. Well, you could also argue that La Noir <laughs> sure. yeah. is the Biggest adventure game ever made. Yeah, um, what if we took point and click and just blew it 
to insane proportions. Mm-hmm. What if it were drive and tap? <laughs> drive and what run. What if it were drive and stare? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, drive and doubt. There we go. That's yeah. the uh, that's the genre kind of type. Okay, I think that will do it for today's episode. I've got to uh, run to a meeting, so I've I've overshot just a little bit. So, um, Cam, thanks so much for joining us for this discussion, for uh, doing the retrospective for us and enabling us to have this Waypoint 101. Uh, let's do it again before too long. Absolutely. Uh, I'm ready when you are. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, you know, I would say if if any of this sounded interesting to you, probably worth checking out El Noir if it's on sale. It's not going to hurt you in any kind of way. Um, and because uh, because it, it is legitimately interesting in the broadest possible way. Uh, and, you know, as well, not as always, because this is a new thing. But thank <laughs> you again to everyone who's uh, listening to this and who has subscribed on uh, Waypoint Plus. Uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, tell your friends, get them to sign up for Waypoint Plus. We'll be doing lots more of stuff like this uh, in one way or another. So looking forward to uh where subscriber content goes from here uh we'll probably be back next month with another show in this vein um i've got a few candidates i'm tossing around but we haven't picked anything out uh for sure yet uh so stay tuned for more updates on what we're going to be returning to next uh but until then uh this is rob zachney signing off (laughs) 